We've been talking about Jesus and women, and last week I did a sermon titled Jesus, the Original Women's Rights Activist, and talking about the place for women in the world, the place for women in the kingdom of God, where the Bible is concerned and where Christianity is concerned. And I'm distinctly aware that this message will rub a lot of people the wrong way, and I'm actually really happy with that. I think, I think we need, sometimes you need to get some sandpaper out and scrape off the outer layers that are pretty nasty. And we need to talk about this stuff in church. We need to talk openly about it. And even just this morning, I I saw an article. I I got up early this morning and spent some time working on the sermon and saw this article by a prominent leader, Christian Christian female leader that we would consider a conservative evangelical. And she talked about her life as a Christian leader being a woman. And she says, she says, as a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, and don't get keyed in on those words. This is describing who she is. In the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant, pronounced deference. Not just proper respect, which was, I, I was glad to show, to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature, so I wouldn't be taller than he. Now... <clears throat> Whether any, there, the question automatically pops up, how much of this was what she thought about what was going on, how much it was the reality. But like, like when we talk about race issues, a lot of times perception is reality, and, and you deal with these things. So a woman who wants to be a preacher, a woman who wants to be a missionary, a woman who wants to be a leader is going to deal with at least the questions of whether this needs to be the way it is. I, I also saw another article pop up last night about uh, a prominent leader in... <clears throat> A, a very prominent denomination in the States, talking about how he will not apologize for some of the statements he's made on the topic that I, I, I talked about last week, is whether abused women should leave their husbands. Um, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that there are good reasons for a woman to get out of a situation if it's violent or even if it's abusive in, in verbal or emotional ways in some sense. And he was saying, I will not apologize that that is not my stance. Last week we talked about how 79% of, of preachers in the 80s said of 5,700 preachers were surveyed, 79% of them said they would never advise a woman to divorce her husband in the case of physical abuse, to, to divorce or even separate, which is a tragedy in my opinion. I think, I think we've taken scripture to twist, to twist around a terrible situation, and I think it needs to be said that in abusive situations, it's okay to get out. Now, every situation is different. I think you need wise counselors. I think you need wise people around you to help you navigate these waters. But I'm not a pastor that will encourage a woman to stick around to be abused. This is part of that article talking about what he had said in recordings. He, said, he tells the story of a woman who came to him about abuse and how he counseled her to pray for God to intervene. So he counseled her, never leave your husband, stay in the situation and pray that God does something. It says the woman, he said, came to him later with two black eyes. And she said, I hope you're happy. And he said, yes, I'm very happy because her husband had heard her prayers and come to church for the first time the next day. The fallacy here is that this pastor is assuming had she left, he would never have come to church. He's thinking, he, he, he was happy that she stayed in an abusive situation and got beaten up because of a later result that may or may not had, have had anything to do with this. But we need to speak out. As a church and as people, we need to speak out that this is just absolutely wrong, it's immoral, and it needs to be corrected. And it's stuff we need to think about. And so today I want to talk a little bit about some of the differences that are scientific between men and women. Again, we addressed that on March 11th of this year. You can go back and watch that sermon. But we're going to talk about that briefly. And then we're going to talk about how Jesus treated women when he came across them. When he interacted with women, what did that look like? 
And I want to introduce you to a friend of mine named Jesse. And Jesse is probably somewhere in this picture. I don't know where he is. But this was at Cornerstone Festival in the 90s. Cornerstone was a Christian rock festival where 300 bands came and you camped out for four days and laid in hammocks and listened to hundreds of bands. 300 bands played. And uh, Jesse was a Fabio type. He had long, golden, cascading hair and rarely wore a shirt. And he always wore shorts with combat boots. But girls liked it. I, he, he just had a, a way with girls. They, they, they really had a thing for Jesse. And Jesse loved women. And when I say Jesse loved women, I mean it like the normal sense that you're thinking, oh, he loved women. But he also had this like, deep, sensitive respect for women that at the time in my life, I honestly made a little bit of fun of. Because at this, at this concert, uh, they would have guest speakers come in, and a lot of the guest speakers would address women's issues. And Jesse would go to all these women's meetings, and we would hound him about it later. We'd be like, man, why are you going to all these meetings with a bunch of girls, right? I was just, just in college or just out of college. I was a moron and an idiot back then, less than I am now. And Jesse was like, because I respect women. He said, I want to know what women think. I want to know how women process. I want to know the issues women face. He says, if I legitimately love women, it seems like I ought to learn about women. And I always thought it was just a way to pick up girls. I always made fun of Jesse. But the more I've thought about it, I think he was onto something. I think, I think Jesse was onto something that men should say, I want to try my best. And, it, and we realize it's one of the greatest battles, right, for a man to understand women. But when we talk about how Jesus treated women, we, it, it's, it's important, in my opinion, to talk about kind of how women are. And so I'm going to just briefly talk about some of the differences between men and women. And these are differences as reported in Psychology Today, Scientific American. So I've read, I've, I've read academic treatises on this topic. These aren't, these aren't just... You know, something you picked up online that somebody wrote in a meme. This is, this is the, what the scientific research conclusively shows across the board is some of the differences between the way men and women are. And we'll start here is that women smile more and, women, and men tend to look angry more. This is just, this is just a scientific fact. In, in studies, it shows that women are, have a greater propensity to spend time smiling. Women exaggerate their facial expressions for positive emotions more than men do. Now, it's important that we say this from the beginning, and I'll say it again at the end. We're talking about as a whole, not as specific individuals, and it's a really important distinction to make. But I think back, a movie that I watched a long time ago was Pretty Women with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. And there's one scene where Julia Roberts gets a, a, some jewelry or something, and she's ah, ah, real excited, and you see Richard Gere go, and that, that is kind of what we're talking about here, is that women, when they have positive emotions, are more physically expressive about them than men are. Women react more negatively to images of violence or suffering. In scientific studies where they've made men and women sit in rooms and watch horrible things, women react more vigorously towards those things in a negative way. Men are more unfazed by, by negativity. And women lean more towards benevolence. So if we want to talk about what a Christian looks like, the women definitely have an upper hand here. The women are more likely to help, and it's the reality. If we do a service project here in the church, the statistics bear out. If we have 40 people show up, 30 are going to be women every time. There's just no question about it. Women are typically more benevolent. They tend to care about others more than men do and act on it. Now here, so, so on some of this stuff, women, women seem to have kind of the upper hand if this was a contest, which it's not. But this is where things, if, you, if anybody just takes this clip of my sermon, I'm going to be on the headlines. So please don't misquote me. But the science shows that women are more prone to neurosis than men. And when we're talking about neurosis, we're talking about guilt, shame, sadness, fear, and social anxiety. So they, 
they feel shame probably more than the average man. The average woman feels shame more than the average man. The average woman deals with depression more often than the average man. The average woman deals with guilt more often than the average man. Just statistically, scientifically across the board, this is just how the facts bear out. But this doesn't mean that they're lesser or worse than men because women are more likely to use excellent methods to deal with neuroses than men are. And so what you've got is women typically deal with, let's just say, guilt more often than men. A woman is more, on average more likely to be racked with guilt than a man is. But the woman is more adept at dealing with her guilt than the man will ever be on average. And so it's kind of a wash when it comes to this stuff. Um, so they use things like co what they call cognitive rumination and seeking emotional support. And so what this means is women think about why they feel. Women think about why I feel ashamed or why I feel guilt or they process stuff in their heads running through the experiences they had and how that has developed them as people. Men are like what Seinfeld said. You ask a man what he's thinking, he says nothing, and it's kind of true. Men, in general, just don't process the way women do. And so that's why at night when we lay in bed, my wife is thinking, okay, tomorrow we got to do this, 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 and she's asking me questions. So she's doing cognitive rumination and seeking emotional support. So she's saying, well, tomorrow i got to get Siler to his basketball camp, but to do that we have to get some cash out of the ATM because they always ask for cash when we go in. And she's asking me all these questions, and I'm thinking, man, this bed is soft. <laughs> but do you see, I'm not dealing with my stuff. She is dealing with her stuff. So women cope and deal better, but probably in general feel more. Women react less happy at viewing happy films. This is why I understand Dumb and Dumber and Napoleon Dynamite, and my wife doesn't have a clue. These are funny, funny movies that she cannot appreciate. Thank you, brother. Bam. Women, in general, tend to be more agreeable, and, and there, there's a whole lot of research about what that means for the job force and climbing the corporate ladder and how that ties into some of the wage gaps and, sorts and such, because climbing the corporate ladder often requires being disagreeable, and so men probably have a leg up when it comes to climbing the corporate ladder, but then there's a lot of theorists out there that say the corporations are just jacked up and messed up, and that's why that system's in place in the first place. But in general, women tend to be more agreeable. Now, what's really interesting about these scientific studies is that the gaps in these studies are greater in egalitarian societies. So societies that are more equal tend to have these differences in greater number. So when it comes to neuroses, in an egalitarian society where women and men are considered more equal, that gap expands, which is really not what you would expect at all, but that's the reality. And, and so far in my reading, I can't come up with an explanation for that. But women in egalitarian societies tend to be more expressive with their emotions than women in societies that will keep them down, which in some sense doesn't make sense to me, but that's what the science shows. It also shows that up until the age of 14, these gaps are very small. Boys and girls are really quite the same as they grow up, and it's not until these, these, these pubescent hormones kick into their body that these gaps start to become wider and change. So somehow biochemistry does play a part of this. Now, what I want to say about this is that generalities are not reflective of individuals. It's so important that we say that. We're talking about generalities when we talk about the difference between the genders. And the studies show, so, so you hear women are, are, are more apt to, to deal with neuroses than men. And immediately everybody says women are neurotic. They, they're like, oh, well, I knew it, right? Everybody has these culturally things planted in them. And what we find is that the gap isn't that large. The, the science shows that there is a difference, but men are neurotic too. We're all pretty neurotic. It's just that women in general deal with it a little more. 
We all want to be known, to know, and to be known. So when it comes to me and my wife, I am most certainly the most neurotic between us. There's no question. I am more apt to deal with depression. I am more apt to deal with guilt. I am more apt to deal with shame. I think anybody that knows us would say, yes, that's absolutely true about us. So even, even in my marriage and, and, and the woman that I'm most intimately acquainted with, there's this difference between what the science shows and what individuals shows. And so we have to treat people as individuals, but recognize that we all have this inner desire to know and be known. And most of our fears and most of our shame and most of our guilt comes from a lack of this. It's, it's, it's where love is lost. It's where love is not given. And as we talked about last week, for all of known history, women have been less loved than men, less valued than men. They have been held down by the system. So last week we talked about Jesus entering into this system where, where women... So we talked about Greek culture and how in Greek culture wives could not divorce their husbands. That will be important in just a moment. Uh, women were not allowed to speak in public, so you couldn't just walk up to a man if you were a woman and talk to him in Greek society. Uh, one mistress over the house who satisfied her husband sexually had more freedom than the rest. Wives were kept under what Greek historians call lock and key. In Roman history, they couldn't even order their slaves around. So we, we, we hate the idea of slavery, but even in that system, the women were in some sense considered less than slaves. Um, they weren't allowed to go in public without a veil. They, they had little to no property rights, and they, again, they were not tolerated to speak in public. And in Hebrew culture, and so culture was a mishmash of these three societies, Greek, Roman, and Hebrew cultures that were all living together. And this is how each culture treated women. And in this culture, you see that some of the teachings said the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. They were barred from speaking in public with men. So they could, they could go out in public a little bit more, actually, than the Greeks and the Romans could. But they were expected to remain silent when men were concerned. They worshipped in separate... Imagine if we had a ladies' room here at Daylight Church. We had a separate theater and we simulcast that over there. That's hideous to us at this point. But that's exactly what was going on in those days. And the women were expected not to sing too loudly because they didn't want them to interrupt the worship of the men going on in the next room. So this is the situation Jesus steps into. There's an old Hebrew prayer we talked about, praise be to God that I was not born a woman. And this is something that still, I think, Hebrew people and, and Jewish people have a hard time reconciling, that that's still in their prayer books. And then they said a heathen or a slave. So women were, I don't want to be a woman, I don't want to be a heathen, I don't want to be a slave, was a typical prayer of a Jewish man during the time of Jesus and for much of history after that. And this quote we said last week, says, the history of our world, all periods of history, all continents, all cultural traditions is rampant with damage, oppression, diminishment, contempt, and hostility aimed at women. And I heard of, I, I've actually befriended a dude online. Um, we play a, a game together, and there's like this separate chat thing, and we've started chatting. And his tag name is Suiji Leo, and I have no idea why his tag name is Suiji Leo. But we somehow started talking about my sermon and, and, and women's rights and this sort of thing. And this is one of the things this guy online said. He's from British Columbia, Canada. He says, I don't get how so many people can believe today that God built them, meaning women, because this is the context of the, relation, or the conversation, to serve one step behind, one inch below. And if we're honest, the church has played a huge part in this. The church has played a huge part in, say, in, in delivering the message to women to say, you're just a little bit less. We're subtle about it all throughout history. Some of it wasn't subtle, but nowadays, it's, it's, I, I think it lingers. I think we've come a long way, but there's this lingering idea. 
And my, my, my thought is, and the reason I have a serpent in here, from the very beginning in, in the Genesis narrative, when God creates the world, he creates, he creates mankind, male and female, he creates them in his image. So from the very beginning, it says God created men and women in the image of God. But then it tells this story, and some of you believe it's literal, some of you believe it's figurative, but either way, in the story, the devil, Satan, the demonic dark forces of the world, comes and corrupts everything. And then this curse happens. And the curse talks about, so, so God says to Eve, the, 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 the first woman, depending on how you look at things, says, I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman. To the devil, he says, I will put hatred between you and women. And between your offspring and her offspring. And then it says he. It's talking about a particular individual. And a lot of people think this is the very first uh, prophetic mention of Jesus in the Bible is that it says, says there will be this battle between the devil and women for centuries and then someone will show up and crush the devil's head is basically what it says. But there are many people who, who think that this passage seems to indicate that we live in a world that we're not the only beings in it. That's my opinion. That's my take. We can talk about that if you're interested in it. Come to pizza with the pastor. Say, do you really believe in demons? I'll talk for way more time than I probably should. I believe in demonic activity, and I believe one of the devil's objectives for all of history has been to keep women oppressed, to keep women down, because women are fearful to him, because God said from the very beginning, she will teach her offspring to crush you. And so from the very beginning, you see this battle going on, and then you see the he show up. You see, and, and it's almost, there's almost some sadness to it that this is kind of a male savior coming into it, and I, someday me and God are going to say, well, why didn't you make Jesus a woman? I don't know. We'll have that conversation. But the Messiah came, and you see the Messiah breaking into a patriarchal culture that doesn't allow women to speak. It doesn't allow women to worship with men. It doesn't allow women to hold property. It doesn't allow women to divorce their husbands. It doesn't allow women to be women. That's the culture the Messiah Jesus shows up into. And then we're just going to run through quickly some of the encounters that he had with women. The first is on a Sabbath day. So this was a Saturday back then, and the Sabbath day was a day of complete rest. Rabbis, believers, good Jewish people did nothing on Saturdays. They prepared their meals on Friday because on Saturday they don't cook. They don't go for long walks. They don't tend the crops. On Saturdays they take the day off. Well, this woman who is hunched over, I've seen women like this in Europe. She was hunched over like this, and it says she's been that way for a very long time. Jesus sees her on a Sabbath. Well, the religious leaders of his time hated Jesus and were always trying to entrap him always trying to prove that he wasn't who people were saying that he was. And Jesus goes to this woman on the Sabbath and speaks to her and heals her. She stands upright and she's made totally whole. And the religious leaders are ticked. And probably, if what I'm reading makes sense, probably partially because he dealt with a woman in public and partially because he broke the Sabbath by doing work on a Saturday. And Jesus says this to them. He says, he says what is this? basically he, he implies, what is the Sabbath for? Is the Sabbath for God or is it for you guys? And the implication is that it's for you guys. And he says, he, he refers to her, he says, Do you see her, a daughter of Abraham? Which would be better, for me to relax and do nothing on the Sabbath or to bring God's restoration and healing into this woman? And the answer was obvious. But this was so insulting to them because they were sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham was a phrase that was used over and over to describe good Jewish men. And we don't, as far as I know, we don't have any other time in history where a woman was referred to as a daughter of Abraham. 
But Jesus, in this moment confronting the religious leaders, raises her up to the level of a man. And I'm, I'm convinced the more and more I read that this was a part of the process that ended up with him on a cross, is how he broke into the society and liberated women. There's another situation where this woman has had, she's been on her period for years and years and years and spent all her money on doctors trying to be healed, trying to get fixed. Because in Jewish culture at this time, when you're on your period, you're considered unclean. This is part of the Judaic law. And so when, you, when you're on your period, you're expected to stay out of, civilized, out of civilization, out of society. And if they go out into society, they're expected to make their presence known by yelling, unclean, unclean. So, she, so imagine how embarrassing. Like we, we look at this right now and think, are you kidding me? But that's where they were at in those days. Well, this woman was fed up. She was fed up with how she was treated, that she was consistently, constantly unclean and a reject from Jewish society, and she had heard that Jesus could heal her. So she does the unthinkable. She sneaks through a crowd. She doesn't yell, unclean, unclean, so that the the waters part and she can walk through untouched because she's untouchable. Instead, she sneaks through, and she thinks, if I can just touch him. Now think about this. This rabbi walking through the streets with this massive throng has this woman for years has been unclean and rejected by all Jewish society. She pushes her way through the crowd and touches Jesus in this massive group of people. And he immediately turns around and says, who touched me? So she touches his robe. He says, who touched me? And she kind of cowers because she's found out at this point. She's supposed to be yelling, unclean, unclean. I'm on my period. That makes me bad. That's what's going on in this patriarchal society. And instead, she, she's been found out. And Jesus says, he, he turns to her and he says these really interesting words. He says, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And I didn't mean to use King James, but there it is. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Now, a good Jewish rabbi at this point would have, oh, oh I got to go, go ceremonially wash myself and get clean from this rejected woman that touched me. How dare you? That wasn't the response of Jesus at all. When culture said a normal medical thing going on in your woman makes you bad, Jesus said, nope, we're going to fix that thing, and we're going to raise you up to be the daughter that you've always been intended to be. Prostitutes love Jesus. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, and you can bet that there was scandalous talk through all that. So this Jesus came from questionable backgrounds, for sure. And so what we find throughout Scripture is that women who we would consider uh, women of the night or or such would flock to Jesus. There was something about him that attracted, attracted them. And he's in the house of a religious leader at one time. And they're having a nice meal. And it's uh, props to the religious leader for having Jesus because Jesus was super, super controversial at this point. And this religious leader is probably trying to get the lowdown on what's going on with Jesus. Well, they're having the meal when this prostitute comes in the house. And remember, women are not allowed to eat in the same room as men. Women are not allowed to touch men that aren't their husbands. And then at home, they're not allowed to speak to men. And you get this woman who is a known prostitute bursting into the room and rushing Jesus and wrapping her arms around his feet, and kissing his feet, and weeping over his feet, and then taking her hair and wiping the tears off of his feet. Now, I heard one preacher recently say that he hopes, he wonders if the religious leader had the thought, I hope Jesus doesn't think she's early, which I thought was a pretty creative way of thinking of things. This, this prostitute shows up at the house, and the religious leader is worried about the impact of her even being in the home. 
And so now you've got this woman touching a rabbi, talking to him, crying over him. It's, I mean, it is it's scandalous, no question about it. And Jesus says to her, he, he, he turns to, to, to the religious leader, and he, said, he says these really incredible words. He says, do you see this woman? So in this culture where she was unseen, where men would probably avert their eyes when they walked past her, he says to the religious leader, look at her. Look at who she is. And then he says this really fascinating thing that's kind of an apologetic for Christianity. He says, I tell you, her many sins have, forg- have been forgiven as her great love has shown. We could talk about that particular little line right there for days. And he turns to her and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This scandalous behavior of a woman coming in and breaking through the barriers that have kept her down her entire life, Jesus celebrates her. Jesus says, good for you that you didn't bow down to this system that's ruining women. Good for you. You're faithful and loving, and this is good. And he did it in front of the religious leaders, and he even told the religious leader, he said, when I came in, you didn't kiss me on the cheek, which was one of their rules. He says, you didn't wash my feet, which was one of their rules. But man, you're going to freak out if this woman comes in and talks to me. You're going to put that rule above all the other rules. So he, he, just, he hammered the religious people all the time Jesus did. Then you've got this story of Mary Magdalene, who was one of Jesus' disciples. So Mary followed Jesus from place to place like, like, like a man would. And there's a story where, where Mary comes in while he's having a meal. And she takes this expensive perfume. And it says the perfume was about the same value as an average year's wages. So assume, you know, some of you will be insulted by this. And some of you will think, wow, I wish I had that much money. But let's pretend that the average wage nowadays is fifty-five grand, $55,000 worth of perfume. Okay, she takes $55,000 worth of perfume and comes behind Jesus and pours it all over his head and anoints him as the king with this perfume and then weeps and cries with him. Now, the funny thing is, and this is so fascinating to me, in this story, she walked up to him and poured it over his head. Check it out. Try to Google something to deal with this situation. Mary anoints Jesus or Mary perfumed Jesus. And every picture you'll find written, painted in medieval times shows this scene unfolding. It shows her at his feet. That's not what the text says at all. But even throughout history, even the artists didn't want to put the woman up at the same level as Jesus pouring oil on his head and anointing him king. They wanted to keep her down in the dredges, keep her down in society. And Jesus says this about this woman. He says, I tell you... So, so the disciples are tripped out about this. $55,000 worth of perfume just dumped? I mean, they're insulted by this. They said, you could have taken that money and fed the poor. And Jesus turns to her, and Mary, Mary was known for being emotional and extravagant. You see, it, you see it all the time throughout Scripture. There's a difference between Martha and Mary, the two sisters, and we'll see that in just a moment. But Martha, Martha was upright and obeyed the rules and did what she was supposed to do, and Mary was just, she would just sit and cry and fall down when Jesus came in the room and worship him. And, and what he says in this passage is, he says, what you did was extravagant, irrational, and I love it. That's what Jesus said to this woman who just wasted $55,000. And he says, he says, I tell you, wherever this gospel, the good news of Jesus, is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. Now, a Jewish rabbi in this days would have said, would have said, oh, I didn't have anything to do with that. I didn't even know she was coming, right? That would have been a man's response in this culture, but not Jesus' response. 
Jesus says you will forever be enshrined as someone who did something amazing. And for centuries, people will talk about how great you are. That was his response to a woman coming to him and dumping perfume on his head. There was a, a, boy, a, a young man who died. He was the, son, the only son of a widow. And in this culture, your financial prosperity hinged on the men in your life. So if you had a, a son, you would be provided for. If you have no sons and your husband is gone, you're begging for bread. That's just how culture was. You, you had to have a man in your life to succeed financially. And this funeral procession is going by, and Jesus interrupts it. And I just think this is one of the most beautiful moments in the entirety of Scripture. Jesus walks up to the casket, commands the boy to be alive, and the boy sits up. And then this is what it says immediately. And it could have said a thousand things, but this is what it emphasized. It says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And I love this line. And Jesus gave him to his mother. They didn't have to say that. They didn't have to emphasize that she was there. He, th- th- even the gospel writers could have emphasized the man. The man was alive again. Everything was made great. That's not what it says. It seems to indicate that the compassion of Jesus was towards this woman in this society that kept her down, and he was trying to help out. And this is what you see consistently in the life of Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't push women away. He doesn't push women down. He does everything he can to lift them up. We talked about the raising of Lazarus. I'm going to fly through two more, and then we're done. The raising of Lazarus last week. And Mary and Martha were sisters, and they sent for Jesus. And he had plenty of time to get there, but he waited. That's a separate story for a separate day. But when he gets there, Martha hears he's coming. She runs two miles out to meet him, and Mary stays at home. So Martha, the the upright, kind of non-emotional, stoic worker, goes out to meet Jesus, where Mary, who is typically the more emotional, she's, she's the more extravagant one, stays behind. So Martha shows up to Jesus and says, Martha... She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So she's, I mean, she's just direct with Jesus. Obviously, he's, given, he, he's allowed this to transpire over the course of the relationship. But she does not fear talking to Jesus in public with crowds around. She says, what, what are you doing? Rabbi, why, why didn't you come when I asked you to come? And he feels comfortable about this. And it's probably because something they established earlier. If you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And then Martha shows her interesting information that she had to have gotten from Jesus is that she believes in the resurrection of the dead. She's been trained. She's been taught. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After this, she goes to Mary and says, the teacher is here. And we talked about how phenomenal it was that they were even allowed to talk about that, talk to him as the teacher last week. So he goes to Mary, says, the teacher is here, and Jesus is asking for you. So, he, so, so the stoic turns to the more emotional lady and says, Jesus is looking for you, right? When Mary reached the place, and, and again, Mary's always fallen down, always. Like almost every passage where you see Mary, she's fallen down and crying. When Jesus saw her weeping, I'm sorry, Mary reached the people where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet. And said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then notice the difference between Jesus' response to Martha and Jesus' response to Mary. They're completely different. With Martha, he instructed her. He taught her. With Mary, it says he sees them weeping, the Jews that had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. She says, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. So with the stoic, she gives, he gives her instructions. With the weeper, he weeps. He doesn't have to be logical right now. He doesn't have to 
press his teaching on her. He just feels her. He knows her and wants to be known by her, which is what we saw at the beginning. To, to know and to be known is the hunger and desire of every person. And Jesus seems to have this in spades when it comes to ladies. And he seems to know them. He knows who they are and what they're all about and what kind of person they are because individuals vary. The spectrum of individuals, are, it's a crazy difference across the genders and across, across people. And Jesus seemed to be in tune with that. And when, and so I think, I think anyone, in my, in my situation, a lot of times my wife, when we talked about seeking emotional support, a lot of times when she's hashing out her day with me, she's not looking for answers. I've learned this kind of the hard way. She'll say, should we do this or should we do that? And I'll say, do this. She'll say, well, we're going to do that, right? <laughs> she's, not, she's not looking for me to answer her questions. She's looking for me to be beside her and with her a lot of times. And, and men are fully capable of that as well, but individuals vary. And in this situation, Jesus knows which kind of Lady Mary is. And she just needs someone to weep with her. She just needs someone to be with her. And then finally, this last, this last story, and I'll close. In John chapter 4, Jesus is thirsty. His, his disciples are going out to get food. He's by himself near this well. And a Samaritan woman comes up to the well. And Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And men don't talk to women. These are the rules. This is the law of society at this point. And yet Jesus says to her, hey, would you, would you get me a drink? Would you mind getting me a drink out of there? And she's shocked by this. She says, how, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, to give you a drink? You, you can't, I mean, she's looking around to make sure nobody's watching, right? She's breaking the law at this point. But Jesus is, is saying, hey, we're human beings here. Let's, let's talk. And he says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, that sounds good. Sir, give me this water. So that, You see, sir, there's this deference, right? Master, I, I would really like some of that water that you're talking about. And then he says something that we've misinterpreted, in my opinion, for decades as a church. He says, go get your husband. Do me a favor, go get your husband, and then we'll talk. And she says, I have no husband. Now, what happens next is, is what I think that we have grossly misinterpreted forever. And here's, here's a paraphrased version of the Bible that kind of sums up how we've perceived the next passage. He says, that's nicely put. I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Now, in, this is the message translation, which I normally love, and I absolutely despise this, this way that he's translated it because there's this judgment there. Do you hear it in, in the voice? Oh, sure enough, right. Yeah, way to, way to say it. You don't have a husband right now. Yeah, you spoke that right. But that's not what it says. And in the original language, that's not what it talks about. And other versions get it more accurate. He says, he says, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. But we have for so long read this passage as a condemnation of this woman that we have a hard time seeing what really went on here, and let's bring it into culture and context. In culture and context, she could not legally divorce a man. Now, what does that say about her? It says she's been abandoned five times. It says she's been left five times. Five people were tired of her stuff and said, you're out, and she had no say in any of it. Now, who knows all the details of when and why and how, but I don't think we're looking at condemnation here. I think Jesus is saying, I know you. I feel your pain. I get who you are. I get what you've been through, and it sucks. He's saying, this is terrible. I don't think Jesus would actually say that, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I said it, but that's, that's my vibe. 
is that Jesus was saying, you've been left behind, and now the, now the man you're with who has the right to marry you won't even marry you. Men have treated you badly for much time, for a long time. And then she says this. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet, which I, just, I don't know why that, that line just makes me. I'm like, yeah, you're really smart. I love you. <laughs> but then later in the passage, this is what it says. So she, she, she says, I got to go tell everybody about you. The man who knew me and wants to be known by me, I got to go tell somebody. And she does. She goes into her whole village knocking on doors. Think about the scandal. She's going knocking on doors, everybody saying, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Come meet this guy. And it says that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The very first evangelist message bringer of Jesus was a woman going knocking on doors and loudly proclaiming, this man spoke to me. This man touched me. This man knew me. And so when we get back to this idea of knowing and being known, in all these passages, what you see is Jesus seeing the unseeable in a culture, touching the untouchable in a culture, and releasing the oppressed in a culture. And so my message to you here today is twofold. One, if you're a lady, you can do whatever you want to do. I believe that. You want to be a leader, be a leader. You want to be a preacher, be a preacher. You want to teach a Bible study, teach a Bible study. If you want to be a housewife, be a housewife. I would say the same thing to men. If you want to be a house husband, be a house husband. We're not, we're not tied into these roles. And women are, I just, I just want to yell it out loud and clear over and over, women are equal to men. Women are equal to men. I hope you can't sleep tonight because the phrase is rolling through your head so many times. Women are equal to men. Women are equal to men. Women are equal to men. Created in God's image, the same. Different, but same in value, same in, in, in equality, same in competence, same in ability, same in intelligence, same. 